This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Colorado voters gave Democrats total control of state government. So what will they get for it? How aggressive will Democrats be in the legislature when it comes to gun control, fracking, and money for schools? And what room is there for Republicans? Let's get answers from the incoming Speaker of the House, Democrat Casey Becker of Boulder, and from Senate Minority Leader, Republican Chris Holbert of Douglas County. We spoke at the state capitol, where lawmakers reconvene Friday. Welcome both of you to the program. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Democrats head into this session with total control. The House, the Senate, the governorship. That hasn't been the case since 2014. Speaker, do you read that as a mandate? And if so, what is your mandate this session? I think voters were rejecting the cruelty and chaos of Washington. I think they were also aligning themselves with democratic policies. We're really focusing on advancing the Colorado way of life, uh, reducing health care costs, making sure we have an economy that works for all. And I think those messages resonated with voters. Health care costs, certainly something the governor campaigned on and has said is a priority uh, for his administration, that is governor-elect Polis. You talk about the Colorado way of life. It sounds like an ad for tourism. What, is, what does that mean to you? How does that guide you as speaker? I think that really gets to Colorado values around environment and the outdoors. You know, a lot of people from all over the country move here, start their businesses here, start their families here because of those environmental values. So I think a, a part of it is environment. Okay, we'll dig into the healthcare and environmental policies in just a bit, but I wonder what you might tell despairing Republicans, Senator Holbert, heading into this session, who think, my goodness, there's no backstop on the Democrats. Well, first, we look back to the election, and clearly voters, especially unaffiliated voters, went Democrat uh, in 2018. But what I tell Republicans is take some hope. Voters did side generally with our views on taxation, Proposition 112, the role of oil and gas industry, setbacks. Uh, The voters voted fairly conservatively or Republican-like on the issue side of the ballot. Uh, We do recognize they went the other direction when they chose candidates. Let's go back to health care. State Representative Dylan Roberts and Senator Kerry Donovan, they're both Democrats who represent mountain communities along I-70, plan to introduce a pair of bills on the first day of session that would direct the state to create a public health insurance option. Uh, Speaker, are you on board with that, and uh, why or why not? I think we're going to see a whole variety of bills introduced to address health care costs. I think, which are especially high in the mountains. Which are especially high in the mountains. I represent part of that area as well, and it's incredible. And the state really hasn't been able to do anything to address it. So I think there's going to be a variety of proposals, ranging from more transparency in billing, um, transparency in pharmaceuticals, how insurance prices things. But there are going to be proposals like a reinsurance program that would... Um, sort of redistributes risk. That's exactly right. What about uh, the Senator, public option? We're going to have a discussion about it. I think that... doesn't sound like you're committed to it. I want to see where the House and Senate are. What we know now is that things aren't working the way they are, and we have to have changes. You say that you tend to lean towards a public option. Why is that? Well, I think it holds promise for reducing health care costs for people and making health care generally more accessible. That is in markets where there might be a very few a number of plans offered, or very few insurers. There would always be this one insurer, a sort of guarantee of that. That's right. 
I, I would lean against a public option. I, I don't think it's the appropriate role for government to compete with the private sector. But I expect that the health insurance companies are probably all scratching their heads and wondering what, how they might respond to this short of actually having a public sector option. So uh, it'll be interesting to see how those private companies might respond in hopes of addressing the, the, the high cost of insurance, especially in mountain and west communities. Maybe there's some way that we can resolve those issues without government actually competing with the private sector. You know, government provides Medicare, government provides Medicaid. They are essential programs for a huge number of people. So, you know, as a fundamental concept, is that a problem? No. Okay, so last year, Republicans blocked a so-called red flag gun bill, uh, which would have allowed judges to seize firearms from people deemed a risk to themselves or others. And this session, a freshman state representative, Tom Sullivan, who lost his son in the Aurora theater shooting, told us that he'd be the lead sponsor on what's also known as a gun violence restraining order bill. This is interesting. He is not leading on this because he thinks it would have necessarily saved his son's life. I'm not quite sure that this bill would have had anything to do with preventing what, what happened to Alex and the other 11 people that uh, were murdered in the theater. You actually think of this as a bill that combats suicide as much as it does externalized violence. We had over 800 deaths last year in the state of Colorado by firearm. Over 600 of those were suicides. Speaker, is this destined to become law now? I think this is the year to pass the red flag bill. You have the numbers. We have the numbers to pass it, and we think it's good policy. The opposition is not necessarily centered on the subject matter of that bill or the wording of that bill. It is the wording of the Fourth Amendment of the United States Constitution. And that wisely restrains the power of government to search you, your person. It's not the amendment I thought you were going to point to on this one. No, no, it isn't. Be honest. Our view, at least my view, is I'm very much interested in what changes do we need to make for law enforcement or the courts to help a person who is demonstrating concerning behavior, making threats. Um, Deputy Parrish uh, was killed in the district that I represent. In Douglas County. This is important to me. Uh, My older son is a deputy sheriff in Douglas County. This is important to me. But even members of law enforcement say, wait a minute, what about the Fourth Amendment? Okay, when we talk about guns, the elephant in the room is the session during which Democrats were in control of both chambers. They passed, after the Aurora Theater shooting, uh, a package of gun restrictions, including universal background checks and limits on magazines. Following that session, there were recall elections, and it was largely seen as a response to Democratic overreach. Democrats lost their majority in one chamber. Is there a risk of that happening again? Do you have that in your mind, Speaker, and think we got to mind our P's and Q's. Well, we have to mind our P's and Q's. I think that it is likely that no matter what we do, some people are going to scream overreach because they're not going to like it. There's a lot that was passed in 2013 that people yelled overreach about and now today are saying that actually turned out to be really good policy. Universal background checks have broad support in, in polls. Absolutely. I would say that the magazine limits or perhaps is perceived as less successful. A lot of law enforcement just don't know how to enact them. Yeah, what, you know, but that's one example of when there was a cry of overreach. Another example is when we passed a 10% renewable energy standard for rural electric associations, and some counties said they were going to secede from the state over that. In fact, so many of those rural electric associations today are saying, 
our energy provider isn't moving to renewable energy fast enough. So that was just five and a half years ago. And when people screamed overreach and are now saying, we actually want to go a lot farther. People I think, I think what I hear you saying is there may be cries of overreach, but eventually you'll come to love it. Well, I think, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, but people screamed overreach about civil unions. And one year later, the U.S. Supreme Court said there's actually a constitutional right to gay marriage. You know, what is, so back to the idea of minding your P's and Q's. What does that mean practically as a legislator? I think we want to push good policy, do broad stakeholder work. Do you want as and, many Republican votes on things as possible? Is that a goal of yours? I think to... If we can get bipartisan support for any legislation, we welcome that. But it's not going to stop us from enacting good policy. You know, we, we aren't going to require that there be one Republican vote on every bill or anything like that. We're going to work towards getting bipartisan support, but not to the extent that we think we compromise the underlying goal of what we want to achieve. Is part of the Republican strategy simply to sit back and hope that Democrats overreach? Uh, yes and no. Uh, the statesman in me says, no, we don't want overreach. We want to govern with an even hand. The political leader in me, yes, would I take advantage of that if it was presented to me? I would have to, but I don't control that. I have to see what is presented to me. Where I find hope is that Senator Leroy Garcia from Pueblo will take that gavel and lead the Democrat caucus as president of the Senate. The reason that gives me hope is that Senator Garcia represents one of the districts where a recall occurred. Mm. And he was here in the House. I believe he voted no on the mag ban bill. And he has put his name on bills twice that I have run to repeal that. If anyone in the Senate knows where that line is of overreach, I think it's Leroy Garcia. You're listening to Colorado Matters, and we're hearing what majority Democrats want to achieve at the state capitol this year, and what, if anything, Republicans can do about it. My guests are the incoming Speaker of the House, Democrat Casey Becker of Boulder, and the Senate Minority Leader, Republican Chris Holbert. Okay, oil and gas, another perennial issue facing the legislature. Colorado Rising, which was the group behind Prop 112 on the last ballot, uh, and which failed, they have said that they will gather at the Capitol the first day of the session to demand a moratorium on new drilling until a state-sponsored health assessment is completed. Uh, Speaker, is a moratorium appropriate? Well, I think it's definitely time to pass new oil and gas laws to change the mission of COGCC to make sure that health and safety is absolutely part of their analysis in determining whether to approve a permit, and I think also giving communities greater say. COGCC is the Colorado Oil and Gas Conservation Commission, something of the governing state body for this. Yeah. It sounds like you think that that agency, for lack of a better term, is on the industry side. Is that what I hear you saying? Yeah, and I think the statutes might be currently written to make them that way. Would there be a bill to change its mission? Potentially. I think that's going to be part of it. I think, you know, health and safety concerns, air quality, water quality are really top of mind for a lot of people. You know, you don't have to be living next to, you know, an oil well to be impacted by the air quality. I don't think people are actually paying attention. I know COGCC hasn't been to how bad things have gotten. So that's something we really have to address. And to this moratorium idea, too extreme? 
Well, you know, that is really going to be up to the governor. I think that there's a legal question about the, whether the legislature could flex that muscle. Can, can pass a moratorium. But I think it's absolutely reasonable to say that, you know, there's a huge number of permits that have been issued recently. And people were concerned, oil and gas was concerned that 112 would pass. And they thought if they got their applications in quicker, maybe they'd be grandfathered. I do not want COGCC rushing through any of that. And I absolutely want us to be able to pass a bill that gives health and safety a primary consideration in citing. Chris, you also represent people who hold these mineral rights and for whom access to those rights is a matter of of their livelihood, of their economic security. What might you add, Senator? Well, I think it's important that we that we keep perspective. This is not a beginning point of oil and gas. It is already heavily regulated. Uh, some would say that we are the, the most regulated or have the best set of regulations here in Colorado. People have cared about clean air and water for generations here. This is not a new conversation. I think it's also fascinating to consider that, once again, in an election in Colorado, we've seen uh, voters go different directions. Um, We have Governor-elect Jared Polis, who will take office, I believe, Tuesday the 8th. Yep. And a majority of the voters said he is their choice for governor. And the majority of voters said no to 112. I think one of the things that was fascinating and powerful during the campaign for and against Proposition 112. Which would have increased setbacks, by the way, between oil and gas and homes, other sort of sensitive areas, big occupied buildings. The number of people I saw at the grocery store out and about with with their kids, parents with their kids, wearing the I am oil and gas t-shirts and having those conversations with their neighbors, uh, people, again, in the produce aisle at the grocery store. And for us to be reminded that this isn't just some monolithic industry that takes resources out of the ground, but as you you mentioned, people own those rights, own that property, uh, private property landowners, not just big corporations. And there are many thousands of people in Colorado who make their living from taking oil and gas from the ground and turning it into energy. As long as we do that in a responsible way, it is clean and and, uh, I share concerns over safety, then that industry should continue. A a moratorium? No, I I don't support that. Over my right shoulder, there's a sign. It says, harassment-free office. This office is committed to a work environment free of unlawful harassment. When you are here, you can expect to work in safety and dignity. I have to think that this sign went up uh, in part because the legislature itself has dealt with questions of sexual harassment. And just last month, two state senators resigned, Democrat Daniel Kagan and Republican Randy Baumgartner. There was a lot of talk about potential changes to be made here at the Capitol, how sexual misconduct is reported, how to better protect staffers, interns in an environment where there are some very powerful people. Just briefly, where do things stand going into a new session? Uh, Well, you know, we made a few steps last year, and I think they were good ones. Um, Mandatory workplace harassment training every year. We've hired a human resources director to help work through some of these issues. I think we want to keep thinking about how to deal with complaints. How can we deal with them in a timely way? Are the complaints going to the right people? You know, what if they're anonymous? And then how do you ultimately deal with changing the culture of the capital? Essentially, this place is all about the exercise of power and influence. And we want to make sure that 
sexual harassment is never a factor in that. It sounds like you're raising a lot of questions. You don't have a lot of answers to them yet. Well, I think it's important that we look back to the uh, workplace uh, culture study that was conducted last year. It was fascinating to see that, and and reassuring for me, I've worked here both outside the glass and now inside the glass for 15 years, starting my 16th session around the Capitol. And I I feel very safe. I, I encourage people to come here. You're a dude. Well, that's true, but 85%, 90%, I think the high was 93% when asked questions of, do you feel safe here? Would you encourage a family member or friend to come work here? Very high percent of people say yes. Where we fell down, where we failed was when they were asked, do you feel confident? Are you confident if something bad happens and you file a complaint? Then we saw that's where the negative opinion was, and truly it it is uh, complicated, and that's being addressed in a bipartisan way, and I I think we're going to see positive improvement. We already have, and I think that we will see a conclusion of that fairly early in the session. Okay, there's so many issues we we don't have time, at least in this conversation, to get to. I think of education funding. I think of roads and transit funding. I think of the fact that sports betting may be coming to Colorado. Uh, In part, the legislature will have to take some steps to make that happen. So let me just ask broadly, when you pass a budget, what will it say? I, I think it was Bill Ritter, the former governor, who used to say that a budget is a moral document. What will the budget say about where Colorado wants to put its money? We are going to absolutely prioritize funding for education, but I think to the extent we can use the budget to advance other goals like renewable energy or addressing climate change, we're going to use it in that way as well. Above roads, would you say? Well, I think funding roads is absolutely an ongoing issue and is going to continue to be top of mind for the legislature. Uh, My caucus continues to believe that we need new funding, that we can't you know, squeeze enough out of the current budget to meet our existing priorities, but also address the $9 billion backlog. So we are going to continue to look for new funding sources, but we have struck deals in the last two years to put significant general fund money into transportation. We've been chipping away at it through the general fund. I just don't think that that's the long-term solution. Thanks to both of you for being with us. Thank you for having us. Yes, absolutely. Thanks for the opportunity. Democrat Casey Becker of Boulder will preside over the Colorado House when it reconvenes Friday. Republican Chris Hulbert of Douglas County will be the Senate Minority Leader. We spoke yesterday afternoon at the state capitol. The next governor, Jared Polis, delivers his first State of the State a week from today. And CPR News will cover that live next Thursday morning. Let's continue this week's look at the legacy of Governor John Hickenlooper, the highs, the lows, and everything in between. Our coverage culminates tomorrow with our final in-depth interview with him as governor. We'll meet at the brewery he started in downtown Denver, which in some ways became his entry point into politics. As Hickenlooper wraps up eight years in the governor's office, he's considering a run for higher office. To understand what he might bring to that... CPR's political podcast, Purplish, looks back at a controversial issue in his administration and how he handled it. 
Hi, uh, this is Sam Brash. And before we go back that far, uh, I want to start a few months ago and a few states away in Iowa. I can't express it's just a great honor to be here. And my father's cousin, my a public affairs reporter, Benta Berklin, recently followed Hickenlooper to the Hawkeye State just to get a glimpse of what he might look like as a national candidate. And Benta, I asked you to come into the studio to talk about something you heard from him out there. Yeah, so I talked to him in between some of his speaking events and meet and greets, and I really wanted to know what he could point to as a moment when he took a tough stance in Colorado. We've taken a pretty strong stand on many, many issues, right? We went for universal background checks, and we got it passed. We went for uh, smaller capacity magazines, and we got that passed. Those are difficult issues. In a state like Colorado, we took a stand. Gun control. That's what Hickenlooper means, is that he took a stand on gun control. Did it surprise you that that was what he singled out? In some ways, yes, and in some ways, no. He did sign a package of gun control bills, and that's a risky political thing to do in a purple state like Colorado. But at the same time, as those measures were moving through the legislature, he wasn't the public face of the issue. And so I think how those measures passed just says a lot about Hickenlooper as a leader, as a governor, and as a potential president. Okay, so as Hickenlooper steps onto the national stage, a look back at one of its toughest moments as Colorado's governor. He led a purple state as it beat back the gun lobby and passed new limits on firearms. But what did he actually do, or not do, to make it happen? Okay, cool. So where do you want to start this story? I really think you have to go back to the summer of 2012. That was the year the Aurora theater shooting happened. It's an assault rifle. We have, we have a magazine down inside, so we go watch out for the assault rifle. Twelve people murdered, more than 70 injured. And after that tragedy, Hickenlooper saw his role as the mourner-in-chief. Uh, I visited several of the families in the hospital, and we are already, as a community, beginning to come together. He was focusing on the victims, talking to families, attending funerals. We're not going to let this community be defined by such a... (laughs) You know, if I had more sleep, I might have a better vocabulary. And gun control wasn't really on the table at this point for Hickenlooper. In fact, a couple days after the shooting, he was asked about it and said, look, even if you took away all guns, James Holmes still would have found a way to create terror. This guy's going to find something, right? He's going to know how to create a bomb. How did that change? The November election. That's what happened. Colorado politics and Democrats ended up with complete control of the legislature. And that meant gun control actually had a chance of passing. A few weeks after that election, Colorado Governor John Hickenlooper now saying state lawmakers should consider gun control measures when they reconvene next month. Hickenlooper talked to some reporters and said, look, I think it's time for us to tackle this issue. He didn't outline specific policies, but it was the most significant thing he'd said on it. And then the very next day, Sandy Hook happened. This morning, the Sandy Hook Elementary School was full of kids concerned about Christmas. And then All of us need to demand governors and legislators and businesses do their part to make our community safer. It galvanized Democratic state lawmakers who told me before Sandy Hook, they weren't planning on focusing on gun control bills or trying to push that through the legislature. 
And then it also put more eyes on Hickenlooper as the leader of the state. You know, people were waiting to see if he'd embrace his party's ideas or if he'd try to tack to the middle like he does on a lot of issues. Um, And so we were going into his State of the State address. It is my pleasure and my honor to present to you the Honorable John Hickenlooper, Governor of the State of Colorado. Members of the press corps, the public, were waiting to see when he was going to bring this issue up in his speech, if he was going to bring it up. And there are no easy solutions here. Some point to guns, other to a violent culture. And how strong of a stand he might take. We shouldn't be restrained from discussing any of these issues. He did deliver one line that was really big for Democrats. Let me prime the pump. Why don't we have universal background checks for all gun sales? They clapped and gave him a standing ovation. Republicans sat on their hands, did not clap. It's worth noting that the policy Hickenlooper did highlight, the universal background checks, was one of the less controversial measures that Democrats were supporting. What were they talking about that was more controversial or seemed more controversial at the time? They unveiled a whole package of bills at a press conference. This sickness of violence is spreading through America like a plague. And inact- the plans included the background checks and also this proposal for a ban on high-capacity magazines like the ones that have been used in Aurora. So high-capacity magazines, for those who don't know, are attachments that hold more than the standard number of rounds. Was Hickenlooper there when these bills were unveiled? He wasn't there. Uh, what's interesting, though, is this whole unveiling of bills happened right outside of his office. So if he was actually sitting at his desk, you probably could have heard it. Right. OK. But even if he wasn't out there publicly talking about these bills and advocating for gun control, I imagine with something this controversial and important, he was probably involved behind the scenes. Definitely. And that's to be expected with any governor on, on something like this, that they would be talking to folks, talking to definitely his party leaders. We didn't want to get to a place where we were voting on bills that the governor wouldn't sign. This is Mark Ferrandino, and he was the Democratic House Speaker. As the bills moved forward, we were talking with him, trying to get his gauge on what is the right thing. He says people can overlook this part of Hickenlooper's influence because it's not public. One of the criticisms sometimes of the governor was he wasn't engaged in lots of different policy areas. But I will tell you, on the big policy areas, the ones that were consequential, he definitely was very involved and we knew where he was. So he was clearly talking to Democrats at the time, giving them his opinion on these bills. Is he the sort of governor who is also talking to Republicans about this stuff? Because he didn't need their votes on this legislation. (laughs) Yes, Republicans say they were meeting with him frequently about Mm. this. And they say they really felt listened to. But in the end, there just wasn't a way to bridge these huge differences. And I appreciate the fact that he would try to bring people across that. But a lot of times it just didn't work. This is Jesse Mallory. He was the Senate Republican chief of staff. Overall, Jesse said he likes Hickenlooper. He thinks he's funny sincere, but also thinks Hickenlooper tries to please everyone and it can backfire and just infuriate people. People really want someone who's going to make a decision, right or wrong, and pursue a path and not do this kind of, well, gosh, shucks, maybe we'll bring some people together. And Jesse said you can't get agreement on some things and it just creates false hope. You said he was talking about these bills in private. Did he ever come out and advocate for them in public? No, he wasn't talking about them much. When he did, it was in a way that he talks about a lot of issues. He's much more comfortable giving arguments pro and con. 
the magazine issue. I mean, I've gone back and forth on. We haven't taken a specific position on that on that bill yet. This is tape of Hickenlooper answering a reporter's questions after an event. It's a tough issue. I mean, how many lives do you save, and and how real is the inconvenience to people that want to have a, a larger capacity magazine and feel that it's essential for defending their house? Now, of course, he eventually did take a position because he signed the bills. What we have signed today make our our state safer in the long run and allow us to begin to address some of these issues head on. Right away, it was clear that Democrats had kicked the hornet's nest, so to speak. Dudley Brown was there that day, and he leads Rocky Mountain Gun Owners, probably the most powerful pro-Second Amendment group in the state. Democrats here have just handed our organization a sledgehammer, and we get to walk through their china shop for the 2014 elections and destroy this Democrat Party. And I know Second Amendment groups made good on that threat and recalled Democratic state lawmakers over these bills. After Hickenlooper signed them, did he try to defend the policies and, and the people who had pushed them across the finish line? No, no, not at all. In fact, just a few months later, a tape actually showed up of Hickenlooper talking to a group of Colorado sheriffs. The audio here isn't very good because someone was recording it without Hickenlooper knowing about it. But in it, you can hear Hickenlooper apologizing for not being more open and collaborative with the sheriffs. Almost a month to get the facts. By that time, I pissed you guys off. I. And he said he and his staff just had no idea that these proposals would actually reach his desk. To be honest, no one in our office saw them get through the legislature. Okay, wow. Um, how did people respond to Hickenlooper saying that? A lot of people were mad. Democrats were facing recall elections for passing these bills. Their jobs were on the line. Gun control lobbyist Anne-Marie Jensen describes her reaction. It was disappointing. The governor or whoever our elected officials are, are not just policy leaders, but they're culture change leaders. And I think it's a role our leaders should be in. They help us to see things differently. And I don't think Hickenlooper liked doing that. Of course, it didn't help with opponents. You know, it didn't make them any happier about these new laws. Right, I'm sure, because they'd already been signed. It was already done. So how did we get from that point uh, five years ago where Hickenlooper was almost apologizing for this legislation to your conversation with him in Iowa a few months ago where he said he took a stand on gun control. It's a different political moment. We have to remember that he was just a year out from trying to get reelected to his second term in office. Mm -hmm. Fast forward to now, he's considering running for president. And since the Aurora Theater shooting in Sandy Hook, we've had more and more mass shootings. And this is still part of the national dialogue. And having passed gun control is probably an advantage in a Democratic primary. All right. So the big question we're trying to get at with all this, what does this say about his leadership? I think what's interesting is, you know, when I ask people, you know, what does this tell the country about Hickenlooper? They all had a similar perspective on his leadership style across the political spectrum. They all agreed he listens to people. He tries to find compromise. His style is to get people in a room to hash things out, but sometimes that can frustrate people he's working with. Mark Waller was the Republican House leader during the gun debate, and he says he always wanted Hickenlooper to be more out front on issues. Sure, the the legislature doesn't want to be told what to do. I think that's different than the legislature being led where they need to go. 
So he says sometimes a governor needs to have a vision, but others say Hickenlooper's cautious style can really work. Former Senate President John Morris, a Democrat, he was recalled over those gun bills. He thinks Hickenlooper is thoughtful and nuanced. John Hickenlooper's greatest strength is his absolute commitment to bring people from every viewpoint together to try to address a problem. But I wonder what this strategy might say about Hickenlooper as people are considering him not as a governor, but as a president. If Hickenlooper does run for president, people should understand they're not electing a partisan firebrand. He's not interested in scoring political points just for the sake of it or trying to make his opposition look bad. He won't cut off dialogue with people he disagrees with. You know, as he likes to say, there's no political upside in making enemies. But on the flip side, he's not comfortable being out front on major cultural issues or really divisive topics. If he is president, a lot of things would come his way that he's never had to deal with as Colorado governor. And I think, you know, he'd probably be happy to go back to a time where he's, you know, debating about signing these gun bills. Okay, Vinta, thank you so much. Thank you. CPR's political podcast, Purplish, hosted by Sam Brash. And we'll bring you a new season of Purplish in the weeks ahead with the backdrop of the state legislature. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. A reminder, tomorrow, my capstone interview with Governor John Hickenlooper here on Colorado Matters. Up next, how recreational marijuana helped save a Colorado town. This is CPR News. They said, go, go see Dr. Dahl. I'm Carla Walker from Colorado Public Radio Classical, and that's conductor and lecturer Scott O'Neill, my co-host in the CPR Performance Studio for a new podcast exploring the life and work of one of the great composers, Sergei Rachmaninoff. Rachmaninoff may be the best example, maybe the only example, of a composer who overcame severe writer's block with the help of hypnosis. He'd walk down the street to Nikolai Dahl's house, lie back in a deep, comfortable armchair, and Dahl would speak to him in this soft, hypnotic voice. You will begin to write your concerto. You will work with great facility. The concerto will be of an excellent quality. Hypnosis worked. Rachmaninoff was able to write his second piano concerto, the middle movement of which is absolutely stunning. It starts in this still, dark C minor. And very quickly, it turns to a warm, comforting E major. For CPR's great composers wherever you get your podcasts, and thanks to CPR's supporting members who make digital content like this possible. Learn more at CPR.org. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. DeBeck, a small town east of Grand Junction along I-70, got on board with legal recreational marijuana four years ago. Pot offered a lifeline to a town that had lost its oil and gas industry and had few magnets for visitors and revenue. Debeck's town administrator, Lance Stewart, has checked in with us from time to time, and we reached back out to him for an update as Colorado marks five years of legal weed. And hi again, Lance. 
Yes, good morning. Nice to speak to you again. Indeed. Your town population, about 500, now has four pot shops and a cultivation facility. Does that mean marijuana continues to be your major industry? Yes, uh, at this time it certainly is. And how would you say it has changed Debec? Well, it has changed Debec for the better. As we discussed in previous meetings, our, our oil and gas revenues uh, basically went away when the oil and gas industry uh, changed uh, during the 2006-2008 period. And the town fathers at that time uh, decided that they needed to come up with another way to support the public services that they provide to the community here. And along that period of time, marijuana became legal in the state, and so they decided to pursue that avenue. And it has turned out to be a very good thing for our little community. Have any of your fears been realized? You know, at the time when the uh, decision was being made and the referendums were being held, uh, I believe there were a lot of misinformation that was passed around, and there were a lot of fears. But for all practical purposes, none of those have come to fruition. Four pot shops in a community of 500 people, that's one shop for every 125 residents, assuming they they all use marijuana, which is probably not the case. Um, Who are the main customers? Is it the people who live in town? Is it people from neighboring communities? Is it folks driving by on I-70 and stopping? Our main uh, customer base is, quite frankly, uh, brought in off of the interstate. Uh, from folks that are just traveling through, as well as people from Utah that come this direction in order to uh, purchase marijuana-type products. Our local base is really quite small. Um, And I guess our third component would be uh, the Grand Valley, which for the most part, except for the little community of Palisade, has still not uh, chosen to legalize marijuana. And so quite a few of those folks are customers of ours here in Debec as well, because it's only about a 25-minute drive. Yes, so there's some exclusivity to the recreational marijuana in Debec. Uh, You did mention Palisade, and I wonder how competition from that nearby community has affected Debec. It uh, actually has um, proven to be more uh, important to us than we had originally anticipated. Um, We have seen a a decrease in the excise tax that we charge on marijuana products of approximately 5% over the past year and a half since a recreational license was awarded to the one establishment that uh, currently is operating in Palisade. So we know that if more establishments are um, created there, that most likely our sales will continue to decrease uh, somewhat, but we honestly don't know what that um, floor will actually look like at this time. From increased potential competition. Interesting. What has changed physically, uh, uh, perhaps uh, to the naked eye in Debec, because of the revenues that marijuana has generated? What have you actually been able to, to build or to change? Well, over the last four years, um, as folks around here know, our entire school campus was raised and reconstructed 
with the major help of a BEST grant that is supported through marijuana revenues at the state level. Our um, streets have been uh, chip-sealed, which will helpfully give us uh, more longevity on the asphalt uh, surface that we have. Uh, We've been able to complete a number of street improvements with curb and gutter and sidewalk in areas that uh, previously were not serviced in that fashion. And probably most importantly is we have a fairly strong law enforcement presence now in the community with four full-time officers, one of which also is the school resource officer. Fascinating. I didn't know what chip sealing was. I had to look that up, but this is a way to prolong the life of roads. And then I understand you've been able to invest in a scholarship. Just tell us briefly about this. Yes, that's the newest um, area that we've been uh, kind of ventured into, uh, is to offer scholarships to our graduating seniors here at the Debec High School. Um, We provide a $1,000 scholarship on a competitive basis to um, any graduating student that is enrolled in some institution of higher learning. It doesn't have to necessarily be a four-year college. It can be a a trade school or Votech school as well. And this year, uh, we hope to give out eight to ten of those scholarships and um, see how that uh, works as long as we still have a revenue stream that will support that. Well, and I, that's the last question I'd like to ask you, Lance, is are you afraid that Dubeck's eggs are all in one bong? It's always a concern when when your base economy is is based on just one particular industry. Mm-hmm. Before it was oil and gas, prior to that was agriculture, now it's marijuana. We continue to have discussions, not only locally but regionally, as to how to diversify our economy. But in our tiny, basically, bedroom community, it is very difficult to attract primary employers. But we are continuing to um, work on that uh, topic, and hopefully the future will provide us with opportunities uh, with which to uh, see some positive moves in that direction. Lance Stewart, town administrator of Debec, a small historic mining and ranching town in western Colorado, which is now home to five marijuana enterprises. Let's stay on the western slope and gaze upward. Starting this month, the Grand Mesa Observatory holds an open house to introduce people to the world of astrophotography. The observatory is built on the world's largest mesa, quite a vantage point. I spoke with director Terry Hancock back in August about the facility. Terry, welcome to the program. Good morning, Ryan, and thanks very much. Paint a picture for us of this observatory. It's on a remote high desert really like ranch land that's traditionally been used for cattle grazing, not stargazing. <laughs> yes, it is. And uh, my next door neighbors have a huge ranch. And, uh, you know, quite often we are guests to the horses and to the cows. What is the importance of this place uh, of stargazing from the side of a mesa on the western slope? Well, I lived for 17 years in Michigan after I moved out from Australia and I was living in a in a place where we only had like about 60, 70 clear nights each year. Huh. I was very frustrated with the weather conditions, the light pollution. What we've got here 
is a very dark spot in Colorado. It's it's probably one of the darkest areas in Colorado that has a observatory. We have good altitude away from the pollution. You know, we're at 6,150 feet. We're 25 miles away from Grand Junction. And the weather conditions are just perfect. You know, we we are averaging close to 200 clear nights every year. I'd like to talk more about astrophotography since it's such an important component of this observatory. As an astrophotographer, you have photos published by NASA and National Geographic. I guess, first off, are there many astrophotographers in the world, Terry? Oh, yeah. There are literally thousands. Okay. Yeah. And and it's growing, you know. Now, the owners of this ranch where the observatories are uh, are John and Vicki Manser. He's a former commander of the Air Force Space Center, and he's retired to Florida. And he explained that uh, this observatory in rural Colorado allows astrophotographers and astronomers all over the world to control the telescopes without having to actually travel to the Grand Junction area. From my computer here or from your computer there or from computers anywhere in the world, in reality, I can tap into any of the five telescopes we have there and tell them what what star or what galaxy, whatever I want to look at. The telescope will flew over to that. It'll take the pictures I tell it to take. It will download them, and in a few hours, I can have all that data in my computer. Now, I understand the celestial body of the month for August was Andromeda. You also featured the Elephant's Trunk Nebula, the Pac-Man Nebula, and the Horsehead Nebula. I should mention here that a nebula is a cloud of space gas. Uh, But it sounds like looking into outer space is a bit more like taking a Rorschach test. I mean, does everyone see the same thing or are there arguments about what certain nebula resemble? Well, I wouldn't say there were arguments and I see different things than probably you would see when we look at an object. With the Horsehead Nebula, when I look at that, I actually see a seahorse, not a regular horse. (laughs) And there's also another big horse that's hiding in the background. And, you know, I don't know whether... Many other people have seen that or not, but bearing in mind that light traveling at 184,000 miles per second, you know, many of the objects that we are looking at, we're receiving photons from these objects that are thousands to millions of years old. Mm. It really is looking back in time, isn't it? Yeah, it's a virtual time machine. How did you come... To choose Grand Junction, I mean, I know that you said that the area has its advantages in terms of stargazing, but of all of the places in the world, you're from Australia, you'd been in Michigan. This is connected, I guess, to a photography class that you were doing down under. Correct, yeah. John Manser, actually, one of one of my clients, um, you know, we just got talking one day about how dark the skies are here and he told me that it was so dark on some nights that the Milky Way actually casted a shadow. So that got me really intrigued and you know, John's got this property here and it had been his dream to build an observatory here. And, you know, one day I just said to him, Okay, if you want to do it, 
I'll go down there and run it for you because having a remote observatory, you, you need someone there to run it. It just doesn't run by itself. So John got me down here and I fell in love with the place and the people and I moved here and I'm not looking back. It's just awesome. No, you're not looking back. You're looking up. <laughs> exactly. I'm looking up. Terry, thanks so much for talking to us. We posted some of Terry Hancock's astro photographs to CPR.org. Starting this year, the Grand Mesa Observatory will hold monthly open hours tours. Finally today, a job opening caught our eye, although it doesn't pay very well, about 4000 bucks. Colorado's looking for its next poet laureate. That person will be chosen based on artistic excellence and a demonstrated history of advancing poetry. Oh, and they have to pass a background check. Colorado Humanities is accepting applications through February 1st. The governor will make the final decision. Here's a little something from one of my favorite poets, who is also a singer. This comes from Maya Angelou's album, Miss Calypso. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Fortunes behind the door The cops grabbed Mo And as Joe ran out Brother Mo He began to shout Run Joe Hey the man's at the door Run Joe The man he won't let me